Hey, welcome. It's Saturday morning, 7.56. It's time to do a little show. I don't have any theme today. There's no theme or topic. Uh, It's just going to be a little chat. Let's have a little chat. That's never good. When someone says that, it's never good. Probably the first time someone said that, it was probably very disarming. Like, hey, let's, let's have a little chat. Somebody had something serious to talk about, and they put it that way, and it was probably kind of disarming. But now when someone says that, it's arming. (laughs) We hear about disarming all the time. Think about how many times things are arming. Hey, the way you brought that up was really arming. Uh, But yeah, it's just going to be a little chat. You know, most of these episodes, uh, whether it's obvious or not, are improvised They're not things that I've been writing down. They might be something I've thought about for a little while or thought about for a while. What's the difference between a little while and a while? It's the the same difference between disarming and arming. You better arm yourself when someone says, let's have a little chat. Let's get coffee. Let's sit down and have some coffee and have a little chat. That's what I'm doing. Having a little chat with myself. Uh, but yeah, most of the shows on this this show, most of the episodes are entirely improvised. I don't know what I'm going to say before I do it. Uh, whether the results are successful or not, I don't know. Sometimes I feel they are. Sometimes I have mixed feelings. Uh, but it's a warts and all approach. Uh, and if nothing else, I feel like, you know, my goal is just to pull the rug out from under myself as much as possible. And I like uh, approaches to life that do that, if that's not clear. I like pulling the rug out. And I don't want to get all like, you know, Matrix quote about it and be like, there is no rug. Because you know you've reached a a great point in your life when you start like quoting the Matrix. Uh, uh, You know, the, the spoon thing, like there's no spoon, as if I needed to clarify what quote I meant. Uh, but it's very easy to fall into that, and you know, obviously, that that line from the movie is based on a lot of other ideas that other people have talked about, and everything's based on everything. So there you go. Uh, but the idea of pulling the rug out, and you know, in uh, studying Buddhism more recently, that's something that I always like. Is that, uh, and, and I have to say, too, as, as if it needs further clarification, I have no interest in practicing Buddhism itself, but I do believe those concepts parallel and... Uh, uh, they, they, they parallel and, uh, uh, you know, complement other views. And uh, I believe that a lot of things... A lot of people have come to similar conclusions through different means... And that is to say, not conclusions at all, because we're all just pulling the rug out continually. And uh, that's something that's important to me, is is to never get too comfortable feeling a certain way or being a certain way, and never, you know, never resting too much on your laurels, or God forbid you're resting on someone else's laurels. You're resting on my laurels. Let's have a little chat about how you're resting on my laurels. That happens. People rest on other people's laurels all the time. Uh, but uh, yeah, that idea though, it's it's there, you know. And in Buddhism, there's that idea of the the koan, 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 koan. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but they're the little riddles that 
in some practices you repeat to yourself, but there's no answer. There's no clear answer. And that kind of plays into the idea of pulling that rug out or that rug not even being there, finding out the rug's not there. Uh, but, you know, the second you think the rug's not there, you find out the rug's there. And that's kind of what I mean, where there's never really any answer and there's never really any conclusion. And there's this constant back and forth. And that's where the ideas like the middle way come out. Uh, you know, they kind of, it's like instead of continually going, per, in, in, instead of perpetually existing on these extremes and going back and forth, you don't try to be you don't necessarily try to meet them in the middle, but there is this middle way that doesn't require you to exist on either extreme. And that doesn't mean you can't dance around those extremes at times, uh, but it's sort of like that in-between state. And it reminds me of a quote I read. Uh, I think I'll start with that, yeah, because I, I have some notes, and they're not notes for this show, I never write anything for this show. This show is never scripted, and it's ve- there are very rarely any notes used to do this show. Uh, it might improve the show if I did that more often, but it's just not an approach that I like to take. Uh, but I did just, I was making some notes, and when I say notes, I mean Windows Notepad. It's truly the best program ever invented, and I'm not being facetious. Windows Notepad is it. And uh, I know they tried to create newer versions. Like there, for a while, there was WordPad. I guess that was a Microsoft program. Uh, Windows WordPad. Oh, oh, look at this WordPad. I like Notepad. But Notepad is just so simple. And you know, if you learned HTML growing up, you know everybody learned HTML growing up. That ninety-year-old man. On his deathbed, he learned HTML growing up. No, but if you're around my age and, and you got into you know web development or anything like that as a teenager, you probably remember pulling up Windows Notepad and learning how to code that way. Uh, but I don't. I like it just for all purposes. But for general notes, everything I write, literally everything that I do write, uh, is done in Windows Notepad. You know, occasionally I'll write, I'll jot things down, pen and paper, pencil, paper. Uh, but for the most part, anything I write doesn't matter. It could be something serious. It could be, you know, something derived from, you know, research. It could just be notes. It could be anything. But I like doing it in Windows Notepad. I just love that program. I love the simplicity of it. I love the blankness. I love that you can kind of fuck things up pretty easily in terms of like, I don't know. When I say fuck things up, I, I mean just the uh, the kind of orientation. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what uh, what I mean by that. Because in Windows Notepad, nothing is ever truly fucked up. It's perfect. Uh, but yeah, this quote I had wrote written down. Um, from a guy, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, despite having been to Korea, South Korea, I don't know anything about the language, I don't know anything about the culture, you know, it was just, it was an amazing trip in so many ways uh, for me. In retrospect, you know, as, as much as I hesitate to say this, on a spiritual level, absolutely, you know, climbing a mountain, wearing basically dress shoes, you know, it was really a a powerful experience for me, and I, I think in many ways it 
you know, it, I don't know, it provided me with some of the foundations that I have now. Uh, I don't know, I don't know really why. I don't, I don't, it's hard to really put to words, but it gave me some sort of lasting connection. And uh, it, they have nothing to do with the circumstances that led me there. Uh, or anything like that. I don't want to say nothing, but it's it's just not a direct thing. But yet, it's this recurring. Uh, I don't know. I just I, my mind comes back to it now and again, and I'm just like, you know, that was a much more powerful experience than I realized. And something about climbing that mountain in particular. It wasn't a huge mountain, but I can tell you, it wasn't a hill. And I've tried to figure out what mountain that was, and I haven't been able to, but. I think it's better that I don't know. It's better that I don't know what mountain I climbed. Uh, but this quote is from, uh, I'm just going to say the name as best I can, so- uh, Song Chol. And he was a Korean monk who basically revolutionized, and uh, he basically revolutionized Korean Buddhism after World War II. And I was reading about him, and, and he's an interesting figure, very interesting, because on one hand, he was very much a traditionalist, and he brought Korean Buddhism back to its, at least in, in terms of the, the monastic tradition, the monastic tradition uh, brought them back to, you know, some of their roots that had been corrupted by Japanese influence, because the Japanese, for example, had allowed monks to marry and have families, and under Japanese rule, Korean monasteries were basically businesses. They were basically run like businesses by these monks who had fucking wives. Literally, they literally fucking wives and, and families. And it, it just had it very much strayed from its roots. So uh, after World War II, Song Chol uh, was responsible for bringing it back, being like, no wives, you know, no wives in this monastery, uh, and, and just getting things back to a much more, you know, pushing things back to, bring things back to a more ascetic level, and I don't know that I value asceticism, you know, I think there's something to be said for that kind of restraint and discipline, but uh, in reading about the history of Buddhism and someone like Gotama Buddha, you know, and the middle way, the whole idea is not to veer th- that far into that particular extreme, not to starve yourself, not to completely deny yourself of everything. Uh, so what's interesting about Song Chol, though, is he, on one hand, you know, brought things, he, he raised maybe the aesthetic levels back up a bit, bringing, you know, things back to the, the pre-Japanese influence, um, but he also integrated modern ideas, like integrated modern science into the Buddhist philosophy of Korea, and did it in a very interesting and natural way. Like, he didn't just try to be like, well, I'm going to, because people are talking about science, I'm going to talk about science, you know? He actually did it in a way that makes sense on a spiritual level while staying scientifically relevant, which is very difficult to do because, again, people veer one way or the other. I mean, people get just, they they basically put their heads in the sand, ostrich style, uh, when they decide to pursue careers in science in so many cases. I mean, I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago and just right off the bat, this guy, he was a scientist. I can't believe 
I believe in, uh, I'm trying to think of his field. It doesn't even matter what the field is, but it was human psychology, neurology, something along those lines, uh, something along, an, an ology. He was into ology. Uh, he was an ologist. But right off the bat, he, he said very arrogantly, uh, very hubristically, if that's the word, uh, hubristically, the hubris to say that word. Um, but he said, uh, you know, the, the only goal of humanity is survival. And it takes that just pure Darwinian approach where the only thing we're meant to do is procreate and survive. And it's like, how do you explain all of this shit then, man? And I just had to turn it off pretty quickly after that because it, it, there was just such arrogance behind that view, in my opinion. Uh, and just to say that, so to be somebody who is speaking in facts as a scientist, and what a scientist should do is describe and not explain and not assign, you know, meaning through the scientific process. Because to me, that's a corruption of the beauty of the scientific process. When you start assigning meaning or giving explanations, you are corrupting uh, the purity of the scientific process. Rather, you should describe. And whatever else exists beyond that, you know, acknowledge that or don't acknowledge it, but don't say things like, the only purpose of the human species is to, to survive. Survival is our only goal. Okay, sure. I just don't need to listen to that. But to be able to integrate, you know, scientific ideas into something archaic, something ancient like Buddhism is fascinating to me, and to do it in an interesting way. Whether he gets it right completely or not doesn't really matter. Just even the ability to use those kinds of examples is interesting to me. So I'm finally going to get to this quote, Song Chol, this Korean monk who became the leader of all Korean Buddhism, and you know, hierarchies are funny when we're talking about this stuff. The idea that this guy was the main guy, the top guy, the most enlightened guy. That's always funny when hierarchies form in a quote-unquote value system that's derived from <laughs> reaching an empty state. You know, embracing emptiness, and uh, but not embracing it too much because you got to pull the rug out from that too. So it's just funny when there are hierarchies develop. Uh, but uh, this guy, Song Chol, this quote is, The fact that energy and mass are equivalent means that nothing is truly created or destroyed. This is what the Buddha was talking about when he relinquished both creation and destruction. It is like water and ice. Water converting into ice and vice versa does not mean that either of them gets destroyed. It is just the change in the form of H2O, which itself never changes, just like energy and mass. If we compare mass to form and energy to formlessness, the Heart Sutra says that the same thing the Heart Sutra says the same thing as general relativity. Form is formlessness, and formlessness is form, not only in words, not only in the realm of philosophy, but in truth, in nature measurable by scientific methods. This is the middle way, exclamation point. Uh, and I, I love that. I, I read that and I, I had to write it down. And it reminded me of something I was thinking the other day, because my friend uh, Robert was saying to me, you know, when people are trying to tear down statues, is it really the people who are tearing them down 
or are the statues tearing themselves down? And that put me on a whole trip of thinking about statues. And I was thinking about how, you know, we turn stones into statues. We turn stone into statues, and then when we take statues down, we turn them into stone or stones. We either we, you know, it doesn't really matter if we bust them up or not. Uh, but when we deliberately take statues down, you know, we're taking these things that were once stone that we turned into statues, and we're turning those statues into just stone. Uh, and, uh, you know, even on their own, even a statue that's left to its own, I guess you could say devices, do statues have devices? I don't know. Uh, but a statue that's just left on its own will ultimately become a stone again either way. So it's interesting that even these things that are these rock solid, you know, carvings, you know, they came from something and they become that thing again, inevitably, you know, unless they're maintained, which is sort of funny. It's like, let's maintain that stone so that it maintains its human shape. And that reminded me, when I read this song, Troll Quote, a, f- a few days later, the thing about water and ice reminded me of stones and statues and that in-between state where, you know, it's neither a stone or a statue, but it's in this in-between state. Uh, and uh, it's, I don't know, I don't know what to say about essence. I don't know what to say about, you know, the essence of form or formlessness, but uh, just that part where... Uh, in the song Troll Quote, where uh, water converting into ice and vice versa does not mean that either of them gets destroyed. And uh, I'd say that definitely applies with stone and statues, where it's like a stone turning into a statue or a statue turning back into a stone does not mean that either one of them gets destroyed. And so I guess that's the irony of, you know, tearing down statues or even putting them up. It's the irony of doing either of creating, in our minds, we're creating and destroying something, but in reality, uh, there's another process always going on, and the actual essence of that thing is something entirely from what we think it is, whether it's in its original stone state, or in its uh, statue state, or when it returns to its quote-unquote original state. It doesn't really matter. Um, And... uh, you know, I just want to say a little more, too. Like, I, I mentioned just a second ago, like, the, you know, it's always kind of ridiculous when a hierarchy forms, especially surrounding a belief system that is based on, you know, letting go of attachments and embracing emptiness to a degree. And we see hierarchies develop everywhere. And I don't mind meritocracy. I think the problem with meritocracy is just growing up in the world we do, we see so many examples of things that we're told are meritocracy. Oh, someone earned that, or someone worked for that, or someone you know deserved that in some way. And we, kn- we either know or like just feel that they didn't. And you know, you can get really complicated about it, and you can get into all these weird social politics. And I'm not even talking about that. They're just examples where, you know, you have things like nepotism, you know, there's there's so many examples. We have so many opportunities to question the hierarchies that are presented to us and question the leaders that are in front of us. But I think there's something very natural that makes us question 
leaders or hosts for that matter. I mean, some a phenomena that I think I've talked about before, but is interesting to me is when kids have sleepovers, like when there would be sleepovers, if there would be more than two guest, guest kids, two guest kids, uh, if whenever there were more than maybe, if there was ever more than one guest, and there were say two kids staying at another kid's house, those kids would inevitably rebel against the host kid. The guest kids would rebel against the host kid. Because uh, it, it, the kid who was the host was usually enforcing some kind of rule. They were like, oh, this is my house. This is the way we do things. Uh, don't do that. Don't do this. And even if they weren't that bossy about it, even if they weren't trying to enforce the rules, there would still be this dynamic where like that kid's the boss while we're here. That kid's the host, but he's also kind of the boss. And I think that that just is something that naturally plays out where we kind of fight that. We kind of rebel against it when we can, at least when we think we're not going to get, you know, too punished. What's the difference between punished and too punished? I don't know. Um, but it's something that plays out too and even just creative projects bands you know someone maybe it's the songwriter maybe it's someone else uh, the band leader people start resenting them because that person becomes kind of the rule setter they become the rule enforcer they become the boss and it plays out in the workplace you know very literally the most relatable example is just having a boss at all, where when someone becomes a boss, if it's someone who is once your peer, something changes when they become your boss. Even if they're cool, even if they're cool to you, you kind of resent them or mock them or just feel some need to kind of push back, even if you can't do it directly. Mentally, you do it. And it's an interesting thing that plays out whenever someone kind of gets, you know, set apart from the other people, there's a tendency to resent that. Even if they're not doing anything, even if they're not abusing their power, there's just a tendency to resent that in someone. And I was thinking about that in the context of spirituality, where when someone becomes a spiritual leader, especially in a practice or, you know, philosophy that kind of shoots down the entire concept of fixed hierarchies, but inevitably a hierarchy forms... And there's a difference, too, between being a leader and being a teacher, obviously, where, you know, teaching in theory should just be a relationship between one person to another. It doesn't mean they can't have a relationship like that to many people, uh, but just the idea of being like, you know something I don't know that I need to know, so tell me. Uh, but then that very quickly turns into that same sort of hierarchical relationship, or if not hierarchical, at least it sets them apart, and people resent their teachers in the same way they resent bosses, in the same way they, re they resent the host kid at a sleepover. It's just a natural thing that develops. But not always. I mean, I think some people just intuitively understand the process, whether they know it or not. They just intuitively understand that this person has a certain role in this context, and I can either learn from it or go along with it or, you know, just whatever it is, whatever the reason. Uh, coach. Hey, Coach. Um, just looking at my notes about... My notes not about this show... But yeah, the other thing that goes along with that too is is when someone is the boss, uh, 
and that how the boss breeds resentment inevitably. Uh, even their attempts at generosity or kindness are often seen as tricks. If you've ever had a boss who goes out of their way to do nice things, you're like, oh, this is kind of uh, this is kind of manipulative. Even though it's really nice, I feel manipulated in some way. Almost like the example I like to use of a used car salesman looking you in the eye and giving you a firm handshake and the fact that you can read that in a book about how to influence people. You know, here's a way to impress people. And, the, and once you know that, the rug gets pulled out from under you where it's like, I know what this person is trying to do, therefore how can I be impressed by this unless I somehow feel it's genuine? And that's one of those intangibles. It's one of those psychic things. You know, we think about, we hear the word psychic, and it's really a, a tragedy. <laughs> it's really a tragedy that the word psychic has become solely associated with this, this self-driven power. It's like, you hear that someone's a psychic, and, and people who are self-professed skeptics are like, oh, well, it's all bullshit. There's no, there's no such thing as psychic activity. There's no such thing as psychics. It's all just manipulation and bullshit and tricks. Once again, we're back to tricks. And it's like psychic activity just describes those, you know, the un- some sort of understanding of what's going on in someone else's brain without having any clear example or directive like no way to prove it essentially but you just kind of intuitively know I mean I think most people by now you know by the time they're an adult have had a number of experiences where whether it's a friendship or dating or just something where they know someone's mad at them and they didn't necessarily do anything you know of course we can always you know you should always take as much responsibility as you can and say maybe I did something I'm at least a participant I'm at least a participant, and that makes it possible that I somehow contributed to this situation in some way. You have to take as much responsibility as you can without taking the blame, if that makes sense. Uh, But everyone's probably had that experience where they're like, someone is mad at me for some reason I can't quite comprehend, and I don't feel like I, there's not a direct cause and effect, and I just know it. And yeah, if you're in the same room as that person, or if you're talking to that person on the phone, you can be like, okay, well, I can hear it in their tone. I can see it in their body language. But nowadays in the world we live in, through text message and the internet and online activity and all this shit, sometimes you can figure out that someone's mad at you with nothing. Like, I mean, with no, you don't have any evidence, you don't have anything. Uh, And it especially happens like when you start to feel that maybe you've been dating somebody and you just feel a coldness. And it's not even the words themselves or or their lack of words. It's not even that they're completely ignoring you or anything. But you just pick up on this sudden, it's it's like a a cool breeze shoots through you. And it's a pretty horrible feeling. Uh, You know, it's it's a, you know, not not horrible in a sense that you're being like treated cruel, cruelly or that anybody's doing something, you know, it's not like some injustice is being done to you, but it's just kind of one of those feelings. It's this feeling of dissonance. And what is that? You don't have any obvious sensory reason to believe that this person is mad or being cold toward you, but you just kind of know. And maybe it's harder for some people to pick up on that. Maybe it's easier for others. 
if you've ever dated somebody who's also like that, who also has the ability to pick up on that, it's a fucking crazy situation because <laughs> it's like you're both so perceptive of every little thing that it ends up being like, God, you know, this is just that feeling ends up a constant. Not always. And I mean, I think it could also be good. I mean, I think it can also give people an added amount of empathy, too. Uh, but it's just that to me is psychic. And it doesn't mean because there's this idea that like all psychic use of the word psychic is like some person's power. There's this idea that it's the individual's power. And I do have some beliefs that bleed into that where I do think some people are able to process their intuitions or even process things they aren't in their immediate field of vision or understanding and do it in a way that informs them about events and situations. I do believe in some level of supernatural ability, but I don't know what it is. It's almost like someone is able to do some sort of equation using variables that they don't quite understand. And anybody who says they do is obviously someone to be a little bit skeptical of, but I do think there is something going on and maybe we just don't know what that is yet. Or maybe we used to know what it is and we've kind of lost the ability to understand it. But I, uh, getting away from that, uh, the idea that there actually is some sort of like supernatural psychic power in some people, I do think there is just a level of psychic connection between people. And I don't think it's all woo-woo. I don't think it's all supernatural to say that. You know, you think about how powerful our minds are and how perceptive we truly are, especially when we clear out a path for our intuition, that of course people are going to have some level of psychic connection that goes beyond their immediate, you know, day-to-day flesh-to-flesh reality. Um, I don't remember why I was talking about that, but this is just a chat. This is just a chat, so we can just talk about whatever. Uh, how is this episode any different than any other one? <laughs> Probably not. Um, but yeah, I was. Ta- I know I was talking about. Oh, I, I, I was talking about how like even when a boss makes an attempt to be nice and does generous or kind things it's very easy to see it as a trick. I mean, it's very easy to appreciate it for what it is, too. Oh, it's nice that they did that for us. Uh, But it's also, you also know that it's not entirely natural. They're not a random stranger. They're not a random person. They're not a friend who's just like, hey, I decided to buy you a bunch of donuts today. It's a boss. And in some way, I mean, buying you a box of donuts isn't that much different from just holding a donut on a fishing pole in front of you like a a carrot, you know, in front of a horse. It's not that much different, and it kind of makes you feel that way, which is why you might kind of question it or even resent it. But what is that that makes you know that? I mean, it's not necessarily some psychic ability, but it's just there's no clear way to explain why you know that. I mean, I guess I just explained the logic there. But there are a lot of situations like that where you just kind of, you know what someone is trying to do, but nothing they've done overtly would communicate that to you. You just kind of intuitively know it. And it makes it, it makes the situation feel kind of wrong. Even if there's nothing that manipulative or nefarious about it, you just kind of know something is wrong. And it just goes back to what I was saying originally about, you know, the idea of hierarchies forming in situations that are basically opposed to the the very concept of hierarchy. 
But you do have to accept that some people can teach you things. Some people can become teachers, unknowingly even. That's always the best. I love it when someone unknowingly teaches me something or unknowingly becomes something of, of an example to follow. And uh, I don't know, because like, thinking about the idea of you know pulling the rug out again, thinking about just continually pulling the rug out. Oh, you think you're getting good at, at that? Pull the rug out. Someone will pull it out for you if you don't pull it out. If you don't learn to pull it out yourself when possible, you know, someone else will inevitably do it for you. And it's often when you are convinced that you finally got it. Oh, I finally get it. I finally know the way. And then someone just pulls that rug out. And what I do like about Buddhism as a practice is uh, that's just a continual part of the process. And I think one of the ideas, you know, it's not just the, it's, you know, it's not just some game where it's like, let's just see how, how often we can pull the rug out from under ourselves and other people and how often they can pull the rug out from under us, even though life feels that way sometimes, even though life very much feels like just this game of continually pulling rugs out from under each other and pretending rugs don't exist and pretending they do exist and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I like how toupees are called rugs, too. Pulling the rug off of someone. Sometimes that's what people try to do. I know that's a toupee. It's like he knows it's a toupee, too. It'd be cool if somebody wearing a toupee became convinced that their toupee was not a toupee. Uh, but that the idea, the purpose to me of pulling the rug out, it's one t- to kind of take you farther along. Because each time it gets pulled out and you're like, oh man, I don't that rug's not underneath me anymore. Whether you did it yourself or someone else did it or it just turns out it wasn't there. You finally looked down and you were like, oh, it's just not there. there who knows where it went? Who knows if there was a rug? Matrix quote. Uh... I love that quote from The Matrix about, you know, where it's like, my favorite quote from The Matrix is, you know, do you know that, <laughs> do you know, <laughs> did you know that that toupee is, re- is his real hair? No, I don't know. I don't know where that joke's going. Uh, but the purpose to me of continually pulling that rug out is to get farther along. And each time it does, it's, I guess you could relate it to the two steps forward, one step back although I don't know that that's the exact um, ratio. I think that the reason I don't like that quote completely is because I don't really like the two-to-one ratio. I don't think it's always that simple. And, I mean, it's just a fucking cliche quote, so why analyze it? Because that's all this show is now, is just analyzing cliches and talking about how much I love them, but then questioning them and pulling the rug out. Uh, but, yeah, in pulling the rug out and then you know, going back and forth and you're, you know, you're oscillating to some degree, there's this pendulum and you're in, you know, in the Buddhist way, it's the middle path, the middle way as, as uh, Gautama Buddha, you know, came up with. And of course he didn't come up with the idea of that, you know, synthesis or some sort of, you know, finding the common element in things whether you can define it or not, you know, as Song Chol was talking about, you know, it's it's not even necessarily about defining that common element between the ice and the water, or the example I used of between the stone and the statue and the statue and the stone. It's not about even defining that. It's just knowing that there is some common element. And I think the inability to define it is, you know, what's at the core of all of this. Uh, there is something, but you can't necessarily define it. Um, 
but yeah, in making progress through just, you know, going back and forth or, you know, thinking that you thinking that you figured it out and then you find out you didn't or that you have more work to do or this or that, it's it's all based around this idea of attaining some level of perfection, but not but knowing that you yourself are incapable of being perfect. Because to me, that's the Christian lesson as well, one of the many Christian lessons in you know having a figure like Christ, where Christ embodies perfection in so many ways, and you know the idea of Christ dying for your sins, I believe that that is really dealing with the subject of you know being a perfect human. And the idea of original sin is that you can't be perfect. You can't be perfect. Uh, you know, you're born with the sin, and I think people grossly misinterpret that. And, you know, it, there's this idea that's like, oh, because I'm born with original sin, like, it's like it, people pe- feel personally attacked by that idea. They think that it's some personal indictment of their own character, and they're like, oh, because, because I was born with original sin, it means I'm a piece of shit. So I might as well just ignore that whole idea and just be a piece of shit. And it's like, that's not what it's, that's not the idea at all, at least as I see it. You know, I see the idea that, okay, I'm born with this original sin, which means that I am going to be imperfect from birth to death and maybe beyond, probably beyond. And there's this guy who, you know, I mean, you know, like in the story, in the context of the Bible, this guy is basically perfect. And if that guy were to live, I think most people would agree that he'd be a pretty good guy. If, if Jesus were walking the earth right now and you knew him, I mean, you might resent him. You know, he might be like, oh, he's, he's like, does this guy think he's my boss? Oh, why, why is he giving me free food? Why, is he, why did he give me those donuts? You know, you might find a reason to resent him because you're imperfect, and you'll find reasons to resent people, and you'll find reasons to resent people because of your own imperfections and the perfections of them, because you're born with this original sin. And so the idea, though, isn't to completely reject that and be like, oh, because I can't be perfect, I'm going to be a piece of shit. The idea is to be like, well, I can't be perfect, but I can try to emulate perfection and in doing that, you know, improve myself immensely. Even if there's a large degree of vanity or ego, I mean, the Bible itself says, uh, you know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I might have that mixed up. It could be, I can't remember if it's all is vanity, vanity of vanities, or if it's vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I think you get the idea. I mean, the Bible covers that, uh, where you're always going to struggle with that idea of ego and self, and that ties back into the Buddhist idea of letting go of the self, but, you know, you can't truly ever let go of it. And, you know, just when you think you've lost your, yourself, the rug gets pulled out and yourself comes back. And just when you think that you know yourself, uh, the rug gets pulled out and you're, you know, detached from that feeling of self. It's almost like the idea of ego death, you know, because you'll hear about ego death, and there's an irony to ego death where the second you acknowledge an ego death, your ego is reborn, <laughs> you know, where, where it's like the second you feel like your ego is gone and you acknowledge that, that's the moment your ego is reborn, uh, especially if you acknowledge it to someone else. 
that's a clear way. That's a clear fire, surefire way of knowing your ego is back. The second you tell someone else about your experience with an ego death. Um, but uh, but to get back to that idea of you know original sin, where it's like you're you're always going to be contending with this thing, and you know perfection might be Christ, it might be God, it might be something else, it might just be a a a moral virtue. It doesn't even have to be a person. It doesn't even have to be embodied by an entity, but it could be just simply a virtue. Oh, I can never live up to that virtue completely. But if you look at that virtue and you, you know, you focus on it and you say, well, it seems like, you know, if I if I follow that virtue, if I do my best, if I truly do my best, if I clear a path for that virtue to influence me, uh, maybe something good will happen as a result, or maybe I will improve myself in some way. And it doesn't have to be purely about self-improvement. It could be about, you know, it, it could be about something much larger. It could be about helping other people, as most virtues are, most true virtues. True virtue. Um but there is always a self-serving element, you know. Just when you think you're doing something nice, you know, you could realize, oh, I'm buying these donuts for these people so that they work harder for me. And you just have to live with that. You know, that's, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there are many bosses who think they're doing something really nice and just genuinely uh, altruistic for their employees. And then they have this, like, biting moment where they're like, shit. I'm just doing this so that they do something for me. And it doesn't mean don't buy them the donuts. It doesn't mean don't do nice things for people. It just means there's it's there's an, an imperfection. The whole situation is imperfect, and we're born into it with an original sin, with an imperfection. And uh, another Buddhist idea, and I don't, I don't like remember any of the words. Like I don't need to know the the original Buddhist words. I think if you follow that practice, it's important probably to know that so you can have conversations. And I think words are very powerful, especially ancient words that have been. You think about all these people that have just spent this time meditating and just focusing on these ideas. Those words accumulate a certain level of power, but you also have to let go of that. And for me, as a non-practitioner, just somebody who is, you know, drawing parallels and, you know, taking influence as best I can, as, as best, I'm basically trying to do what feels natural to me and what supports my own realizations and experiences. Uh, and so for me, that's not like memorizing the these words in other languages that have been used for eons. Like, I don't, I, I just want to know the concepts, basically. Uh, but there's one in, one Buddhist idea that makes me think about that idea of perfection, and it may even translate loosely to perfection, but I, I believe the literal translation is the faraway shore, or it's uh, the most distant shore. So you basically set your focus on the most distant shore, I really should look this up so I know exactly what I'm talking about, but uh, the translation is something to the effect of the most distant shore, and it's uh, used in Buddhism. It's something you set your, you know, you set your focus on. It's something to meditate on, and it's unobtainable. The most distant shore is unobtainable in this context, and that's the idea of perfection. It's unobtainable. Uh, and accepting that it's unobtainable is part of the the path toward it. 
And those are the things that people struggle with. It's it's why people also struggle with like, oh, you know, oh, the the rug got pulled out from under me, so I'm going to go in this direction. And then you go that direction and the rug gets pulled out from under you. That's something that a lot of people struggle with because they feel this loss of stability. And the idea that, oh, I'm supposed to pursue perfection, but in but part of the process of pursuing perfection is understanding that I can't obtain perfection. It's like, how am I supposed to deal with that? And that's kind of, it's it's a riddle, or in, in Buddhism, what would be called like the, the koan, a, a koan, koan, a koan brother. Uh, it's, it's that same idea where it's basically an unanswerable riddle. It could be something, and this is just one off the top of my head, like, you know, accepting that, oh, even impermanence is impermanent. And there are these fun little riddles, and you they're fun to think about, but you know, you're not necessarily going to answer that. And, and the idea is that you don't. There is no answer for that. Uh, it's almost like, I was thinking this the other day, I was reading something about John Cage, you know, the experimental composer, John Johnny Cage. Uh, and I, I had a thought where I was like, you know, because John Cage exists, we don't need John Cage. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of the same idea where it's like, because John Cage existed, we don't need John Cage. And there are a lot of examples of that where it's like something sometimes something exists just to remind you that it doesn't it didn't need to exist. And I don't mean that in a way like it sucked. It's not that's not a criticism of John Cage's, you know, creative philosophy or what he did or I think in this case didn't do. I mean the most famous example is obviously like 433, the song, quote-unquote, that was four minutes, 33, you know, seconds of silence. And it's like, because that exists, it doesn't need to exist, and it really doesn't. Uh, And I've never spent much time with John Cage, like some of his kind of music concrete, you know, uh, sound collage sort of stuff is good and of interest to me and it's just just something I I genuinely enjoy don't listen to it a lot but I've had a couple moments where I'm like oh yeah this is you know this sort of electroacoustic uh music concrete style is something I always enjoy when it's well done and uh you know I, I can't take anything away from a guy like that uh when I say we don't need John Cage but it's this sort of sort of a a riddle. I mean, even that's sort of a riddle. Because John Cage exists, we don't need John Cage. Um, What else is in these notes here? Um, Not a lot. I don't have a lot more to say. It's Saturday morning. Going to get my day going. My day going... Uh, I guess just to go back to that idea of perfection, though, I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with, because when someone tells them they can improve, even if someone doesn't say with a pointed finger, like, you can do better, you can do better, you can do better than that, Uh, even if someone's not doing that, there's still this idea that any attempt at self-improvement is pressure to be perfect, and that... When someone wants, I don't know, it's just, there's this idea, and I think it's especially relevant right now with some of the discussions people are having over, you know, body shaming and all kinds of things. I think there's this idea that, you know, trying to improve yourself at all is 
fruitless and pointless because you're never going to be perfect and it's all some sort of external pressure to be that way and in all of that confusion people lose their intuition they lose uh, just a connection with what their body actually is and isn't and i don't i don't have too much more to say on that cuz i'm i'm really consciously trying to avoid hot topics right now I'm not looking at anything right now because I feel like anytime I pay attention to the news or social media, and I I defend social media on this show, I'll say that here. If you're not already aware, I defend phones and social media, and I'm not one of these people who's like, it's poison, you poison yourself every time you log in. I don't feel that way at all. But getting back to the psychic idea, it is a psychic window that when you leave it open too much, I think it does influence you not necessarily in a bad way but it does influence you and i think it's good especially if you're focused on a particular you know like like i'm doing right now i feel like i'm in a in a study mode i'm studying a lot of ideas and i don't really want those psychic windows to be open i don't really want anything to creep in that's that's not going to just naturally creep in and you can't always control that. I mean, just being a person, things will come in into your field of vision, into your ears, into your, you know, things will happen. And I think that's an even better reason to sometimes close psychic windows because you know they're never truly closed. Uh, but right now in particular, I'm just like, I just had this feeling where I'm just like, you know, I, I need to just like close these things out. I need to not look at, not deliberately look at the news because as much as I avoid it, as good as I am about not reading the news, or, you know, focusing on things. Like the other day, it's like I, I heard, you know, about Antonio Brown and the whole Antonio Brown situation in the NFL. And then, oh, it comes out that there's like a rape allegation. And, you know, my impulse at a certain point in time would have been, I need to read a bunch of articles about that. But when I heard that, someone told me that. They, were, they, they told me the news. They were, did you hear about Antonio Brown? And I was just like, that's all I need to know. They told me what I need to know. I don't need to read articles about that. It's similar to when there's like a shooting or something like that. My impulse used to be to read every article about it, to know everything about it. Uh, but now I, I don't do that because it's not going to it's not gonna have any positive impact on the world around me. It's not going to have any positive impact on me individually. And uh, it's just really a no-win situation. And if you're just interested in it, go for it. I'm not telling anybody not to read things, even if they're dark or you know anything like that. I mean, I think it's it's important to expose yourself to some degree to some of the suffering going out going on out in the world. I mean, beyond your own suffering, I think it's important to be exposed to that. Uh, but it's also one of those things where it's like I don't need to I don't need to look for this because I find that when I'm feeling when I'm when I'm at my most unsettled, when I feel the most unsettled, that's when I start to seek out things that will piss me off because that makes me feel alive. And a few weeks ago, I felt myself doing that again, and not to the degree that I would have even two or three years ago, or especially five years ago, ten years ago. But I did find myself kind of going to websites, going to you know, looking up the things in the news that I knew would just they would make me feel alive. I mean, I think that's why you look at that stuff, is I knew it would make me feel alive, because 
anger and resentment do make you feel alive. But it's a, you know, it's, it's a cheap way to live. It's not the right way to feel alive, in my opinion. Uh, and you kind of know, it's almost like in the same way when, when you intentionally or unintentionally spread gossip, how there's that part of you somewhere in the core of you that knows what you're doing is wrong. It's the same thing for me when I'm looking at things and getting angry and I know that I'm looking at them so that I can feel that sense of anger because it makes me feel connected and alive in some way. And so in shutting this stuff out lately, I'm just like, I'm trying to just, you know, purify my field of vision. And again, it's not perfect. It's not an attempt to my field of vision. I'm just trying to make my field of vision perfect. I only want perfect things coming into my life. That's not it at all. You know, the idea is that inevitably things will come in, things I don't like, things that make me feel indifferent. But just for this little period, and I don't think this is like something to do all the time, for right now, just really limiting my exposure. And uh, it makes you very sensitive. And I don't mean sensitive in a... I'm just so sensitive. You know, I don't mean like emotionally sensitive, but it makes you perceptively sensitive to what's coming in. And right now in particular, it's like if someone tells me something that is particularly that is coming from a place of worry or fear or anger or any of that, it's it's very cutting to me right now. And this is where people are, I just I just need to you know, I don't know. I mean, I feel like people wall themselves off from reality and they they want to live in this, you know, this little bubble within themselves. And I have no desire to do that because when you do that, you live in constant fear of having your bubble popped. You're doing this weird spiritual bypass. It's almost like when someone's just like, I can only think positive. I can only hear positive things. It's not coming from that kind of place at all. It's coming from a place that knows there is negativity in the world and knows that I embody some of that and that some of that will come my way externally. But I have a role, you know. I have negativity within me. The world has a lot of negativity to offer. I'm basically trying not to let those things feed into each other. Uh, But I think right now is a good time to kind of limit my intake. Just limit my intake and listen to that intuition. Is this something that I'm going to regret looking at? Is this something that I'm going to regret reading? Is this a psychic window that I want to have open? And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's good to open those windows. Sometimes it's good to just to let everything in. I've had incredible experiences in doing that when I just let the floodgates open. Uh, it's, and that's kind of back to the rug thing. That's back to the rug where, you know, you got to pull the rug out at some point, you know, like in being in this phase where I'm like, oh, I'm going to limit my exposure to everything. I, I, at some point I'm going to pull the rug out and expose myself to a bunch of bullshit and I'm going to do it because maybe there's a reason, maybe there's not, but I'm going to do it because you can't just stay stuck on one little thing on, and you can't stay stuck in you know one little corner. Uh, you do have to continually pull that rug out. But in the same way that I pulled the rug out from under myself when I was indulging in all of that external negativity, I also do know that I'm going to have to pull the rug out on this, whatever I'm doing now, this 
limited exposure to the world, limited exposure to what's going on around me that could potentially invite me to feel alive, but in inviting me to feel alive, inviting a lot of bacteria to crawl in too, a lot of other living things that I may or may not want. Because that's the, <laughs> the real struggle about being alive is when you're alive, you have to accept that a lot of other things are alive too, and you may not like all living things. Uh, so just pull the rug out from underneath them. Just pull it on out. That's the great thing about being a living thing is uh, you can constantly pull the rug out and close and reopen and close those psychic windows. But uh, do I have any uh, anything else in my notes? We're doing about an hour here. It's almost 9 o'clock. Uh, uh, just... Uh, I would like to talk more about spiritual bypass and spiritual materialism sometime, but I don't feel like doing two hours here. Uh, I'll just close with what I said earlier. Because John Cage exists, we don't need John Cage. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.